Welcome to the Muggle, where we showcase the experiences and learnings of only the best builders and investors in Web3. I'm your host, Yang, and let's kick it off. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Muggle. Um, for this episode, I'm very excited to extend a warm welcome to Lauren, um, partner of Pantera Capital, co-founder of the TRC Collective Investment Network, a great friend and mentor of mine. Um, Lauren, I'm sure our viewers would love to hear about your background, how you got into Web3, and eventually transitioned into your role at Pantera. So tell us more about that. Of course. Thank you for having me. Basically, my background is in engineering. I studied computer science at Columbia and started my career off uh, as an engineer. I used to work on a trading platform focused on our algos and our trade reporting functionality. And that kind of got me interested in the world of finance. Eventually, I left to join Bank of America. I was doing interest rate options. That was around the time when I discovered smart contracts. So this was around 20, late 2016. And from there, it was down the rabbit hole for me. My previous experience or my experience before then basically gave me a full insight into the trade lifecycle from start to finish. I kind of realized if smart contracts really worked, it would take out of a lot of the complexity of the trade lifecycle remove a lot of the need for like the centralized intermediaries. Ultimately, that was what kind of compelled me to get more involved in crypto. And so I always kind of came at crypto through this lens of how can we improve finance specifically? I mean, that's just my background. That's kind of what led me here today. So ultimately, I started writing about Solidity specifically, because I mean, that's what existed back in the day, and just started posting more online about crypto. Ultimately, that's what led me to getting my job at Pantera. And so I've been with the fund for almost five years now and partner and actively making investments on behalf of Pantera. Oh, that's super cool. Do you focus on any specific vertical or a specific um, thesis that Pantera is aligned with? Yeah, so Pantera overall is is more of a generalist fund, but I would say we do have a pretty strong focus on infrastructure. And so just given my background, my areas of focus within the fund tend to be on both infrastructure, whether that's investor tools or developer tools, and then DeFi. Gotcha, gotcha. You previously wrote this very great piece about optimal token distribution. If you're a founder listening to this, I highly recommend you read the study done. Tons of findings in there, and as just to sum all of it up, there was a chart, a conclusion that stated that around 17.5% of tokens should be allocated to the team, 17.5% to investors, 50% to the treasury, and 5% as an airdrop, 10% as just general ecosystem incentives. So I'd love to dive deeper onto the topic of tokenomics for, to kick us off. What, what do you think most founders do wrong when thinking about token distribution today? It's a great question. Honestly, I don't see that many founders getting this completely wrong and butchering it, but I can't stress the importance of having the proportion to each category getting it right, like the way you want it. Because one thing to know is just, it's very, very difficult to go back in time and change it. Essentially, if you're building something that is decentralized, ultimately what I've seen people have to do is they have to propose a change in their allocation distribution or you know propose some other method to, to kind of change the way things are. And then you have to kind of rally everyone 
who holds your token around you to get a majority vote to be able to pass that through. So it's just, it's a very difficult process. It's it's not the same as maybe a, a company that only issued equity to their investors and then they have a board and the board has three people on it and they can make that decision. This is, you've just got a lot more stakeholders around the table when it comes to tokens and protocols. So that is one thing that I would make sure that everybody keeps in mind or, or ask that everybody keeps in mind when they decide uh, their allocations for their token distribution. Yeah, that's always a, a problem that a lot of founders face, especially if your token is misallocated or allocated to the wrong sort of community, the wrong sort of supporter as well. There are, I guess, many instances of this. And a lot of founders, once they face the problem of, oh, my tokens are in the hands of the wrong people, they respond in different ways as well. But because like token distribution itself is like a very path-dependent thing, what advice would you give to a founder who perhaps has distributed his token the wrong way? Maybe the rewards were too inflationary at the start, or maybe the token holders are generally very rent-seeking. What would you say is the best way to move forward from that? From there, I would say you should go to your biggest stakeholders and see if you can get them to agree with you, especially if it isn't the best benefit of the protocol's longevity and just kind of clearly stating what you want to propose to change and your reasoning. I think that's the best really you can do. Interestingly, one thing that I wasn't able to put in the article that you were referencing is I did talk to a few founders from the 2017-2018 cohort where they had just done like an ICO, for example. So I talked to a few of those founders and just kind of asked them if they had any regrets or, or what they would have changed if they could. Overall, I think the sentiment was generally that they wanted to, one, be able to choose their investors more wisely and like who their token got into the hands of more wisely. They did want to, I mean, it didn't exist as much like in this, the form that it does today, but they did want to allocate a bit more to community incentives. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. I think examples of this about, um, I, I was just following, I guess, like the tribe government's issues where people are split up about who should have a claim on the assets in the treasury temple, where you have basically have this mind group of people who just want to redeem yeah, tokens for the underlying book value, while you have another group of actual long-term supporters of the protocol. It's a very tricky thing and it's hard to get, right? There are some other very interesting data points. And within the article, there was also a very clear differential between the way DAOs allocate their tokens and the way applications or general like decentralized applications allocate their tokens. Is there some nuance as to like designing a token distribution for a specific vertical or a specific project? And could you elaborate more on that? I wish I had a bunch more data to be able to go through and mark the difference between like a DeFi protocol, for example, or something that a layer one or something like that and determine what the differences are. But the biggest distinction I could find was between dApps and DAOs. And unfortunately, I just didn't have enough of like data for certain categories. And so it didn't make sense to compare them. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess we can transition a little bit to the investment side of things here. Tokens itself, they are an excellent and very novel way to manage incentives in a very granular manner. Of course, there is also the general question of whether value from all this work that's being done on the protocol actually accrues to the token itself. From an investor's perspective, how do you think about tokens when structuring it? 
that you is there a preference for owning equity in the managing entity or tokens itself or both? What would you usually prefer to see? The way that we always structure our contracts with founders is that if it's an equity deal, we'll just make sure that there's a token clause. So that way, no matter where value ultimately accrues, we have a fair ownership of the value. I assume is this like a pro rata distribution from... It's a deal by deal basis, but essentially you might see like a one to one conversion or you might see like a one to two conversion. It, it kind of varies, but generally there is some number that you or valuation that you put on the equity and the token. And I think it's more common to see one to one, but I think lately we've been seeing a little bit more of like the one to two where the, the token valuation is a little bit more because there's a liquidity premium. But it, it just depends how you, you structure the deal and the leverage that the founders have against their investors. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Lauren, you've been in the venture side of things for a pretty long time. I'd love to hear your views, go deeper into your general thesis about space and I guess your views about venture as a whole. I once spoke to someone who stated that venture capital is kind of like a commoditized business. Uh, would you agree or disagree with this and why? Honestly, I think... I used to agree with that statement a bit more, but as time has gone on and I've gotten a bit more experience, I really, it's opened my eyes. You are really in this with the founder for anywhere from three to 10 years when you're making an investment. So it, you really do need a human component here. Like it's very difficult to have a group of people who are coming and going. I guess just to preface this, I was very excited for investment DAOs because they kind of give different types of people access and experience in venture. And I think that's very important. And there is a need for them in some regards. But when it comes to firms that are leading a deal and really taking on the relationship with the founder, you kind of need somebody who's going to be in the space for a long time and has a certain amount of experience. And I think that's hard to commoditize. It really varies fund to fund, person to person. I guess I don't wholly agree with the statement, but a little bit, sure. Interesting, interesting. So it seems like there's definitely some personalization in terms of how an investor supports his or her founders. Would you say you personally attract or prefer to work with a certain type of founder? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, when I am diligencing deals, so I guess this is the difference between maybe when I was more junior at a firm and I'm now a partner at a firm. Now I get to kind of select the deals that I work on and choose these investments and the founders that I work with. The people that I, I tend to invest in are, I'm looking for kind people, people who I think, yes, can break walls and will do anything to make their business successful, but are also ethical and pleasant to work with, especially if I'm going to be taking a board position or working with a founder very closely on something that they need to get through. You want to make sure that you have a good relationship there. So I think those things are important. Yes, the business side needs to be there. You need to make sure it's a good investment or has the potential to be a good investment. But I think there also is like a human aspect as well that that I personally look for. Right, gotcha. That's super cool. As a follow-up question to that, how do you think someone can be a better venture investor? 
the way that I've been going about it is I'm combining my background working with data and engineering, also focusing on growing my network. And so that way I'm able to one, get deal flow, which is like the most important part of venture. You want people to be sending you deals and thinking of you when their friend is starting a business. But on the flip side of that, when it comes to making good decisions, when you have decent deal flow, I rely pretty heavily on my background in engineering and my understanding of finance in general. I think those things really have helped guide me when it comes to narrowing down the funnel and selecting companies that I want to work with. Right. That's interesting. I personally always find it hard to balance between going very deep technically into a certain project, trying to understand the inner mechanics of things and just zooming out and really just abstracting all of those away and just thinking about, oh, what what does this project really do? And do I really have to know uh, about how this piece of code works or like how this library and, and this works or why is this using a new language? It's so confusing and things like that. Would you say like there's a balance you try to strike between like understanding a project on a very deep technical level and deciding on not whether to invest or not? I mentioned the engineering background, not to say that I think everybody should have it also. I just want that to be clear. I don't think it's a necessity when it comes to diligence. It's just how I go about things. And I do try to understand as much as possible how the inner workings, how it functions, basically, whatever I'm investing into. And I do always spend time testing it out, making sure that as an end user, I understand what's going on from like the, the customer's perspective. But I think that what engineering has given to me is my ability to work with data as well and, and kind of manipulate it, especially my experience with databases. You can see that from the writing that I've done so far. I love looking at industry standards and kind of benchmarking something, an investment that I'm looking at against what exists across the market currently. It's not just about kind of going through source code. And I don't think most protocols, unless they have their source code up on GitHub already, you're not going to be going through the, the source code. Number one, engineering background lets you understand, like, generally, does this architecture make sense? Is what they're trying to do feasible? And then two, it just kind of gives you, like, I want to be more process-oriented and data-oriented when it, when it comes to looking at deals and evaluating them. Interesting, interesting. Do you have kind of like a view in terms of how data and computation will evolve in Web3? I was always excited about the data in crypto. I think one of the most exciting things about crypto is the fact that from all these new business models, you're getting data in literally like real time. Unlike publicly traded companies, you get data once a quarter and you can make investment decisions with that quarterly information. But in crypto, you have stuff, all this basically endless data sources. And there's a lot of vendors working on this, like making the data more accessible. But if you can access it, it's real-time data. And you can make investment decisions more rapidly and with better knowledge, which I think was always exciting to me about crypto. So the fact that like data is transparent, accessible to all, and I suppose like maybe the delivery of data is, is kind of like not too efficient right now, but it can be efficient in the future. I agree. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think people are are definitely working on this, like making low or no code platforms that enable people to access the data. But you've already got a number of tools. You know, if you have basic knowledge of SQL, you can look at Dune. People are building dashboards on there every day. They're not always 100% correct, but 
it's a beautiful thing, like how many dashboards are being built on Dune and how easily accessible it is. That's fascinating. Is there any type of business or like project in data you really think would start to take off in the next few years? That's a good question. I mean, I think definitely one thing I'm I'm very excited for along the same lines uh, <laughs> is, again, these no-code platforms that allow people to understand how their protocol is performing. I think as these protocols grow, both when it comes to how much transaction volume or TVL they might have, they're also growing when it comes to teams and they're hiring growth personnel. And so to be able to have tools for people who focus on marketing and growth, I think that's going to be a really exciting business category in the future. Interesting. Yeah. I don't think anyone has really built a a proper marketing or attribution platform using on-chain data, which would be interesting to to see see something like that emerge. I would check out Definitive. I mean, there's a few people who are going after this space right now. And I think it's a little bit, it's early days, but Definitive is definitely one of the leaders in the category. All right. That sounds awesome. We'll definitely check that out. Right. I'd love to transition a bit into, I guess, your general views on the demographics of the space. There's been a lot of research done into this, and there are some claims that only 5% of the Bitcoin community is female, and according to a study done by Gemini, um, women only make up 26% of the investors in the space. Um, I'm sure there's some base rate neglect here, but the gap factually exists. Why do you think this is so, and do you think this impacts the space in any way? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if this percentage is all people who own tokens across crypto. It's, look, I mean, I think it's it's kind of tied to the reason uh, why finance and computer science tech has generally has fewer women. And I think it just is a matter of stigmas changing, schooling changing. I'm sure we can look at the stats across the country more and more of the time. CS programs are becoming more like of a 50-50 spread, but it didn't always exist that way. So I do think times are changing, but the gap exists just because there's a number of stigmas in place against women going into these kind of industries. And then also there's potentially a lack of education and encouragement in these spaces for women. Gotcha. I guess like on that note, would you think certain initiatives or certain things need to happen for this gap to, I guess, close? I think just generally being conscious of the people that you hire and the makeup of your teams is important. And I am noticing, especially this year, I've been hearing a lot more founders and executive teams being more mindful of the people that make up their company, which is definitely exciting to hear. So in terms of the projects you need, do you see a pointed difference between teams that are more diverse or teams that have more women on their side um, versus teams that don't? I think it's been proven that diversity generally helps a company perform better. I know there was a study done around board makeup and how diversity in boards improves the performance or is correlated at least with better performance from a company. And so generally, yeah, I mean, to have different point of views, views from different walks of life, especially when it comes to a consumer business, is super important. Yeah, I generally do agree with that. Um, in fact, it's probably like definitely a plus to have a more diverse team. 
hard to put a finger on like what concrete benefits actually come out of it, I suppose, but I'm sure there's some research being done into what how qualitatively how the work improves when you have a more diverse team of people from different backgrounds, different genders, um, different uh, nationalities even. Is there anything you're particularly excited about? I know we mentioned the stuff with data. This, as an open question, is there anything in the space you're, you're particularly watching out for? Honestly, I'm always looking for innovative businesses that are differentiated from what exists today in the market and ones that are solving real problems. So I've been keeping my eyes open for that. Is there like a specific example of, or any specific area that particularly excites you right now? Yeah. I think in bear markets, tooling and infrastructure tends to, more of those types of companies tend to surface. And so I'm definitely excited for tools that enable protocols to perform better. And so that could be like a low-code data platform. It could be a really easy-to-use developer tool. But that's generally what I've been focused on for the past few months. Right, awesome. Um, I'm going to throw in, like, I guess, like a creative open question here. Like, if you had a crystal ball and then you could ask anything you wanted about the future and it would tell you the future with perfect accuracy, but you could only ask one thing, what would that one thing be? When is the next bull run? <laughs> That's going to be hard. I don't think even Jerome for what I was. <laughs> this crystal ball is supposed to tell me. <laughs> I'm sure you've been around the space for long enough that uh, you've seen many cycles come and go. Like, would you say you learned anything like from those cycles in terms of like this psychology or, or just like sticking around? Any advice you might give for people who are experiencing their first bear market? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it can feel scary. I mean, especially as you see people exiting the space. But honestly, it's when, from a fund perspective, we've seen our best returns by investing into a bear market. And I think a lot of those companies out of like the 2018-2019 cycle, yes, a lot of them don't make it, but there's a number of them that do really well. And so I would say if you're definitely passionate about this space and you know, you might be worried about where's crypto going. I wouldn't worry so much about where's crypto going. Just focus on building the best company or staying with the best fund you possibly can in the space because it will eventually pay off. Right. That's definitely helpful advice. I think as a question I've also been meaning to ask, something I, I, I personally would love to hear your views on as well. I remember seeing a tweet from Jason Choi from Tangent that, he thinks that the skill set needed for a VC is inherently almost contrary to the skill set needed to do trading. But you have a very interesting background as to uh, because you started out from trading and then you eventually transitioned into VC. Why did you decide to transition over to VC and how do you find the difference to be like? That's a really interesting question. I, I agree. I mean, it's, it's less about the skill set and more about the mindset. Obviously, a trader is thinking, I mean, they might be thinking longer term, maybe they're a buy and hold type investor, but ultimately VCs have to be long-term investors. And so you kind of have to take this often more curated approach to the investments that you're making and know that you're going to have to work with the founders that you've invested in for a long period of time versus trading. Just for context, Pantera does have a trading arm and we have a separate trading team and we operate very differently. Our trading team buys and sells tokens that are publicly traded and don't 
often interact with the founders. Very rarely would they interact with the founders and aren't necessarily concerned about how a finder might feel about you selling their tokens versus an investor. You wouldn't want to sell your tokens too soon because you believe in an upside over a long period of time. And also, you know that that's not in the best interest of the protocol that you've invested into or your reputation. So there's many reasons that you should take a different mindset between when you're trading and if you're investing as a VC. I wouldn't necessarily say it's 100% different skill sets, but it's definitely different mindsets. Yeah, I suppose that there are similarities as to like the speed of information that you absorb, uh, both doing VC and, and trading. <laughs> The, the, <laughs> exactly. The, the velocity of info that comes at you from various different sources. You get a ping on Slack, Telegram, Twitter, and oh, here's a new slide deck. <laughs> that, that's great. Um, I, I guess like um, for I, I guess as like a final like parting question, like what general advice would you give to people who are outside of Web three but looking to get in, but they only have like maybe one foot at the door, or they're just like exploring the space. Is, is there anything to push them towards or suggest that they, they try out? Number one, just make sure that this space really interests you for the right reasons. Like, is it because I would say it's not super trendy right now that we're in a bear market, but it was trendy at the start of this year. And so just make sure you're not, you're getting in because you're actually interested in crypto, because that is what ultimately I think determines whether someone stays for a long time or leaves during the, the bear market cycle. But if you are interested in crypto because of what it can unlock and what it provides to the world, by all means, come join us. This is the most fun that I've ever had in any job. Right. I definitely agree with everything you said, especially the last sentence. It's probably the most fun industry to be in. <laughs> most exciting as well. It just opens your mind like to so many different things. You, you learn so many things along the way because crypto, is it touches on so many different industries. Yeah, just super happy to, to be in the space. Lauren, thanks so much for coming out to this podcast. This was a very insightful conversation and hopefully we'll have you sometime back. Yeah, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. If you found this episode helpful, do give us a like and subscribe. Do put down in comments anything or anyone you'd like to see in this show. You can find me on Twitter or Telegram at yoitsyoung. That's Y-O-I-T-S-Y-O-U-N-G. Thank you for listening and see you soon.